Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot, where we are learning leadership lessons from your favorite stories. Hi, I'm Brian Nutwell. And I'm Drew Perot. And we are on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brains better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. We're back this week to talk about the Star Wars series Andor. We're going to talk about Season 1, Episode 5, and we're really going to try to break down, as a part of our Limit Break series, what does the recipe for a Limit Break look like? We're going to try to define Limit Break here first as an internal change that allows us to break a constraint in the external world. So it's that alignment of a change inside of us or to us that allows us to change the world outside in a hopefully magnanimous way. Limit breaks are required for business transformation to be able to go from one business model to another, to be able to go from one customer segment to another potentially. And limit breaks are really important in our daily lives because if we're seeking to be magnanimous, we want other people to grow and transform. And setting an example by helping to create limit breaks helps others to be able to break limits in their lives so that they can develop more magnanimous character. So in Andor Season 1, Episode 5, we see Andor getting thrust into this team that's tasked with something that's almost impossible. They need to break into this Imperial vault to steal the Imperial payroll for the sector so they can support monetarily the rebellion. Andor kind of gets thrust into this team by Luthen, who, while he offers him money to be a mercenary, he doesn't offer him almost anything else in order to help him to integrate into this team. We see the leader of the team, Vel, who initially doesn't want him, but we can see that she trusts Luthen as a leader, and so she's willing to bring Andor into the team. We see Andor have a confrontation with one of the other crew members, Skeen, because Skeen doesn't believe that Andor's motivation is sound. We see Andor having this philosophical conversation about the purpose and the mission with Nemec. But above all of that conflict, Andor is a really important member of the team. And this impossible task, this limit break that they need, can't happen without him. So what can we learn about how to set up a limit break in our own lives by looking at how the team that's working on this big heist begins to work together despite their potentially different priorities, different backgrounds and experiences and different skill sets? Welcome to Wonder Tour. This is Brian, and I'm here with Drew again to talk about Star Wars Andor. The series has had a very positive response because of its sort of complex and political espionage view on the Star Wars universe. And there's a lot of really cool elements in this show. There's a lot of overlapping subplots and different characters that are in different flavors of the same challenge of being very dissatisfied with their current state of being. But I like what you said about forming the team together, about dropping this new member in who's necessary to the success of the team, but is not very well integrated yet. Because this is a this is a thing we've all experienced, right? Trying to get the right team together and trying to get them to act like a team is a real challenge in any number of aspects of life. So let's maybe start right out with the what if. What if instead of Andor, who is competent but cynical and questions everything, challenges all of their assumptions, challenges their plans, challenges their preparation, challenges their purpose. What if instead of that sort of challenging figure, they get bought in a true believer, somebody who's already a member of the revolution, who's completely bought into 
the purpose and what they're trying to accomplish and is just going to do what he's told, do what she's told. How does that change this story? I think that can give you some blind spots to have somebody come in who is already laser focused on the vision and the purpose. As much as we don't like to have to continually explain our vision and purpose to people, I know that we've probably all been a part of that. It could be your life purpose. It could be, you know, we're trying to change the business at work and, you know, we have a new mission statement. We have a new vision. You know, we want to change our business model. And it feels like you've got to explain it to every single person in the company. This is what we're trying to do. And it can seem like it's just repetitive and there's not a lot of value out of it. I would challenge that while there are times when, yeah, explaining that to every single person is just is not providing value. There is value in the feedback and there's value in having to articulate the vision and mission in a way that different personas can understand it and then getting the feedback from them. It really allows us to have both a better understanding of the complexity of the problem that we're trying to solve and our mission, as well as simplifying the mission, because you have to be able to share that mission over and over and over again. So while there's the obvious holes that and or plugs in the operation in terms of getting the train off the tracks, his background being able to fly ships and stuff like that. But I think the more important thing is the internal change that some of these characters need to have and the realization that they need to come to before they're going to be able to make this change in the external environment. And just throwing Andor in, it's just like tossing a grenade in there. It shakes everybody up. Everybody runs for cover. And then you end up getting some of the conflict that was maybe like deep down comes up to the surface. Yeah, absolutely. Like you get a new team member who hasn't, who doesn't necessarily understand all the assumptions and ask a whole bunch of questions. You'll find out that some of the assumptions weren't maybe very solid yet, right? They, they may have skills that you know that you didn't have, like how do we get this thing off the tracks or how do we fly the ship? But he's also got observations that they didn't know they didn't have. It's like, you're carrying your rifles wrong, right? Like, you know, you guys are pointing in the wrong direction. This isn't, you know, this isn't convincing. But even more than that, it really challenges the leader, in this case, Vel, to double down on the purpose and to double down on the, you know, we're doing things not because it's the easiest way. Like, I know it's disruptive to have this person come to the team at the last minute, but it's more important to get it right than it is for us to be comfortable. It's more important for us to get it right than it is for us to continue with the half-baked plan that we already had. And so a lot of the pieces are already in place, and some of this is just the natural team-forming, storming-norming process. But it's also an opportunity for all of the individuals to sort of examine their motivations, for the leader to demonstrate some strength, for the team to become a stronger team with a more diverse viewpoint. And that's that's a thing that we talk a lot about recently is getting that multiplicity of viewpoints, getting the diversity of backgrounds on a team does actually make it stronger. And even when it comes out that, you know, so it comes out towards the end of the episode that he's a mercenary, that he's being paid to be there rather than being bought into the mission. That in this episode, that doesn't get resolved. Like he has decided to do the mission, but he hasn't started to believe in the rebellion. <laughs> he's just sort of decided to do the mission. But in the process, he's getting exposed to the mission. In the process, he's there for mercenary reasons, but he's talking to some people that are both passionate and articulate and committed to this bigger picture, and it really challenges him as well. I think what ends up happening if they have to go through with this in the situation that we posed 
where they just get another reliable rebel soldier is inevitably the heist is going to break down, right? We've all seen a million heists and, and I don't think it's just fiction that the heist always breaks down. You're trying to do an incredibly complex thing that has so many different branching paths and so many different variables that the point of designing the heist is not that it's going to go off exactly as you said it would go off. It's that when it goes off the rails, we have considered how it might go off the rails and we have some sort of risk mitigation plans or the type of people who can develop on the fly risk mitigation plans. So I imagine they might still get out. They definitely won't be able to take as many credits because if the plane goes off the rails earlier on, they're not going to have nearly as much time to be able to pull some of those credits. So I think, I don't know, just trying to fully envision what could happen in this what if. I think they probably would make it out, or at least some of them would make it out in the same way that they did this time. But I think they make it out with potentially no credits or very little credits because they're probably only carrying the credits that they can put on their person. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's the there's some really good stuff in there about not only the diversity of skill sets, but having people that can help you respond when it goes off the rails who can improvise their way through on the problem. The strongest team that you can build is the one not necessarily that knows in a situation with a lot of unknowns, not the ones that know how to do the same thing perfectly over and over again, but who kind of have a broad set of skills and who are able to react in the face of adversity. Let me ask you this then. Why does Luthen believe that Andor is so critical? Because this is not the only time that he has a lot of investment into Andor. That is an excellent question. And I think that from what we hear in the backstory, is that Cassian Andor has done smaller versions of this thing himself with no team, with no support. You know, he's he's demonstrated that he can pull these things off, that he's got the confidence and the flexibility to work his way through on a smaller scale heists from the Empire in particular and in general, you know, doing something that is not obvious and requires some creativity. Luthen's got a lot of true believers who are bought into the mission, but they're not necessarily experienced thieves, <laughs> which is, again, maybe not the skill set that we generally want to add to our team unless you're working for a really terrible corporation. But having somebody who's done flavors of this job before come into your team, they're going to question the way your plan is because they've done it before. But also you can have confidence that if you can get them aligned with the mission, that they will be very powerful because they have the wisdom of experience, which is a cliche, but also a real thing. I think what you've said there is perfect because it helps us to understand how to build a team. And I know that's not the point of this Limit Break series, but there's a teamwork aspect to these grand Limit Breaks, even if maybe the individual Limit Break doesn't require the team. And this is one example of how to build that team, right? You really want to start by seeding the mission and making sure that you have people who are bought in. You would not want to start this mission with just Andor because he's he's not bought into the mission. He's not going to be willing to stay out there for seven years in the forest. He absolutely is not going to be willing to do that. It doesn't matter how much money you pay him because he doesn't care about the end result, really. He'd rather go try to make a quick buck and go jump to another planet. But you have this strong base that's built up with these true believers, even though we come to find out some of them like Skeen aren't. And then you need an arcane skill set like we talk about with Doctor Strange. You do need an arcane skill set on a team. That arcane skill set could be a Luthan skill set like a conductor. That arcane skill set can be the thief skill set like a Andor or a Bilbo or something like that, right? But you need to have at least one arcane skill set on a team that's going to start to do limit breaks. It's going to be very hard if you don't. Well, and I want to make a connection that you you alluded to there. So our assertion is that the definition of a limit break is 
an internal change, a mindset or, you know, a capability or something that enables breaking through constraints and making an external change in the world, then I would assert there's no other point in having a team, right? Unless you're going to get them to align around a mindset, unless you're going to get them to achieve some internal capability to go make an external change in the world that is big enough that you couldn't do it by yourself. Like teams don't form for the sake of being teams. Teams form for missions. So if we if we pair this up, if we have this symmetry of internal changes and external changes, and we're starting to build a recipe for how to do a limit break, then those things have to proceed in parallel. They have to happen together. And so where we've got so far, if you want to start walking us through the steps in our limit break, where we've got an internal step that has to happen as well as an external step, where do you start? Yeah, that's what we just talked about. Here is the first step. So we'll kind of go through this limit break recipe a number of times as we go through this series. And we know this is an audio format. So it's also in the show notes if you want to look at that in your podcasting app of choice. But this limit break recipe is not that complicated, but it is nice to actually be able to visualize it. So there's only going to be four steps. And step one, the internal step is dissatisfaction. There has to be, for a human to make a change, some dissatisfaction with the way that things are, with who they are, something like that. You have to have that, otherwise the human is not going to be motivated to change. And when we couple that with the external part of this step, which is buying into the mission, finding something to buy into. Like you said, Brian, those things are kind of symmetrical, that you have a dissatisfaction on one side and a mission on the other maybe less symmetrical, more interlocking puzzle pieces that are required in order to move forward from that step. Right. So if we talk about some stories that we visited in the past that we want to, you know, that we might have this step one ingredients in a limit break, the internal dissatisfaction and the external mission. Then if we go back to the Hobbit, when we meet Bilbo in his Hobbit hole in the Shire, he doesn't have any dissatisfaction, really, until he becomes aware of the mission, right? He becomes aware of Gandalf challenges him to go on an adventure with the dwarves and go restore their homeland and be their burglar. And once he starts thinking about that, then he's like, oh, that actually does sound better than what I'm doing now. And so it gets him enough dissatisfaction to get off of the couch and go do the thing. And then he gets progressively bought into the mission more as he goes. Here in Andor, we have a character who is very dissatisfied with the state of the world, with the state of his life. He's been, you know, sort of persecuted and knocked around the galaxy. He's never been satisfied with the state of life, but his mission has always been very small. It's just kind of survive the next thing, find a way to make some money, find a way to get to the next thing. Here for the first time, we're almost halfway through the season, and he's now becoming aware that there is a bigger mission that he could potentially attach to. Now all the ingredients are there. He hasn't completely bought into it yet, but at least it's present where you've got his death satisfaction and the mission. And one of the things we talked about, tying it back to our the, the video game, like filling up the bar in your, you know, in your character before you can do the the super powered, you know, the jump or the the attack, is that the amount of energy that can potentially build up is kind of proportional to the gap. How dissatisfied are you? How far away is the world state from where you are right now? If I'm slightly dissatisfied with the state of my ability to write code in Python or play the guitar, then I'm willing to put a small amount of energy into closing that gap. But if the entire universe is dominated by an evil empire and I start to believe that I can change that, then I could potentially want to put a lot of energy into it. And we see that. We see people that have that drive, that dissatisfaction is proportional to how hard they're willing to work. So those are our first ingredients. Yeah, you explained that first step very well. And I think most people are going to be pretty comfortable with that step, because if you're on this wonder tour, then you've probably got some dissatisfaction with some things. 
And you've probably aligned yourself with some missions and some purpose. So that one's probably not the biggest issue. And, and even as we look around, yes, I'm not going to say that the majority of people have that dissatisfaction of mission. I do not think that that will be the case. But we do see a lot of people who have dissatisfaction and are on a mission. So this first step of the limit break recipe is rather common. And most people could point out in their lives many different places where this is happening, right? Now, as with any process, as we start to go through these phases or these steps of this recipe, there may be less and less people who've made it to each step in the process. And thus, it might be harder and harder to find examples of those steps in your everyday life, though I'm sure that we can find them. So let's move to step two here before we get to the top of the mountain. Step two, the internal piece is a realization. You have to come to a new understanding about reality. You have to realize something like that your old map of reality was wrong and that the new map of reality is pointing to something different. And that realization has to cause you to make a change. Because if we do have a true realization, if we do run into reality, if reality is what you run into when you're wrong, then you have to have a moment where you go, oh, okay, well, if I have this first step completed, this dissatisfaction in this mission, if I believe in the rebel cause, for example, like a lot of these characters do that are a part of this crew, then the logical next step is that they have to have a realization that the empire is oppressing people, that the rebel cause needs money to fund it, and that that money has to, they, they have to have resources in order to reach a limit break. They gotta fill the energy bar somehow. And so you have to come to some sort of an internal realization that there's a change that needs to be made in the outside world. If that change is not made, the mission will fail. And I would suggest that that realization has to be practical. It has to be, this is what I could do. These are steps that I could take. This is a pattern that I could follow. This is a way that I could practice or act or a person that I could speak to, right? So that's, so the internal change is kind of starting to believe. It's clarity on not only am I dissatisfied and I know where I want to go, but I know how to start moving in that direction. So that's the internal change, right? Step two is I've now realized how to walk the path, right? You know, I'm going to go be a Jedi or something. Then the external manifestation of that is alignment, is you can see people starting to act in concert. You can see progress being made towards the goal. And this this can be very iterative, right? You can get the realization, you can get the clarity because you see little progress, you start to believe that big progress is possible. So I don't know if you can talk about this maybe in the context of like an agile transformation. Like have you seen in a workplace where people were being confronted with a new style of working, that moment when it when it starts to click and they're like, oh, this could be better. And then they start to get more on board. They start to get that external alignment. Yeah, and we talk a lot about Agile transformation. I'm not sure that everybody is 100% familiar with that, but that is one of the macro waves hitting business over the last couple decades that's coming to a head right now. So I just do want to take one second to define that. So the Agile transformation is trying to move from the what we call the old waterfall way of doing things, where we very precisely plan everything out for an initiative from start to finish, even if it's going to require multiple years. We plan out the resources exactly. We ask for the funding exactly, and we just go ahead and we build whatever the blueprint said that we were going to build. With the pace of change, Agile has become the preferred way of operating, definitely when it comes to software and data. But I think Brian and I would suggest that it should, for most things, become the preferred way of operating just because the pace of external change is so fast that having a multi-year initiative that you plan everything down to the T just doesn't really work considering that there's going to be so many changes in the world by the time that you actually implement it that it might not actually meet your customer's needs. Somebody else could beat you to it. 
too many variables to worry about there. So the foil to that is Agile, which doesn't throw away everything from the old waterfall. It tries to keep a lot of the things from waterfall where those were best practices, but it tries to chunk the work down into the smallest possible increments that create value for the customer or the user. And then we only plan as far out as we need to. Agile really integrates a lot of the ideas of lean, where we are not creating anything that doesn't immediately provide some sort of value to somebody. And while that might seem simple, that it, Brian and I have both gone through some agile transformation. It is a big change in the mindset and change in the process, change in the roles and everything else. Even when you're bought into the mission for your business and you have this realization that there's a better way. The realization, I love that it kind of maps onto reality, right? You realize like, oh, I've been seeing reality through rose-colored glasses. You know, I've thought Mm -hmm. this waterfall way of doing things was working because it worked in the past. But as somebody starts to pull back those rose-colored glasses veil from your eyes, you're like, oh, maybe it's not working. Maybe we are delivering projects that aren't creating as much value as we initially anticipated. Maybe we are lagging behind our competitors. The key there, though, is that that realization isn't going to come for everybody all at once. And in order to be able to move forward to the next step of transformation, you have to have alignment across your parties. You have to have alignment across people who are different personalities, who have different backgrounds and experiences, just like we see in the episode here with Andor. Yeah. So a couple of practical examples, like when you're trying to do one of these, like you said, changing the work style, changing the way of doing the work and of tracking the work and of planning the work. Some of these techniques, like Agile really likes visualizing things, right? We'll have a board up on the wall and every task is a little card and the card moves from the plan state to the we're going to work on it state to the it's done state or it's being checked state. Like, you know, you can have sort of a tangible representation of how things are going. And one of the reasons for that is because it can spark the realization of like, look, this one card's been sitting here for six weeks or we have a whole bunch of stuff over here in the parking lot that we never got around to. Like if you make that visible then it makes it possible for people to realize like, oh, something about our work style isn't working. Like we need to change that. We need to fix that problem. And that realization of like, oh, this is how bad it really is, or this is the part that's really not working is what enables the alignment, the external alignment of, okay, we'll start trying the new thing, right? Like, you know, we believe the problem is bad enough now. Not only were we dissatisfied, not only do we believe we wanted to be more efficient or more effective or make this piece of software, But now we can see the specific places where it's breaking down and we can start to believe that the leader's proposal for how to do it differently or my coworker's proposal for how to do it differently might actually work. Especially if I see my coworker's cards are moving really smoothly across the boards and mine aren't. (laughs) So those tangible things, there's a lot of different flavors of that. But trying to get people to get credibility to the change so that we can start having alignment in action. And that's our second step. The internal state change is the realization. The external state change is the alignment of action. And we see that alignment happening in Andor through some like pageantry, through some rudimentary 3D models that they're creating on the table where they have the little objects moving around that are representative of the plan and how they're going to achieve it. So I like how you brought in the visualization as one of the key tenants of agile and lean so you really do want to see it i mean i've seen it in business with duplos or legos or whatever right it's like let's lay them out on the table if we've already completed step one we have people who are dissatisfied with the current state in order for them to really be able to move forward into alignment on what should be done to fix it they have to see and believe and so we need to show them what's actually going to happen and then maybe you're going to have some andors who are going to say hey you're holding the gun the wrong way i agree with your plan like we need to march in there 
we can make it better if we hold the gun the right way so that we don't get caught immediately. <laughs> yeah, so let's take us up. So there's a there's some opportunities for our mountaintop moment here in this episode, but let's take us up to one of the moments here where because we're trying to form this team and get everybody on board and because our main character Andor isn't initially bought in, we have a moment where Andor is talking to uh, Nemec, who's the the youngest member of the team and is kind of the he's the philosopher. He's the idealist. And so he's writing a manifesto on why there needs to be a revolution and on all the philosophical ways in which the empire is treating humanity poorly. And so he's sort of the wild-eyed true believer where Andor is the cynic. And Andor doesn't come away from this conversation convinced. He doesn't come away from this conversation deciding to be, you know, a rebel general or a Jedi Knight or something like that. But he does come away from this conversation exposed to not only a new clarifying way of thinking about the current world that he lives in and the future world that he could live in, but also exposed to a person who is completely committed to that change and who is very articulate and convincing. And as often happens, right, whether you're the leader or the change agent or a mentor or something, saying the things out loud and talking about the world doesn't necessarily convince somebody on the spot that they need to change. But you can plant the seed or you can give them a new perspective so that they can be like, all right, well, this is worth aligning with even in action right now. Like, I see that there are some steps that I could take in this direction and starting to become deeper embedded into the bigger picture mission. I think this is where the internal and external thing that we've got going on here really excels at helping us to explain this. I know I was excited when we kind of put together a couple different models that we were working on into this model, because to get these sort of limit breaks, especially like we're talking about in this episode, you have the team, you have these different personalities, you have their different priorities and stuff like that. And we're trying to, by the end of this episode, just to be blunt with the how the recipe is working, we're trying to get to the end of this step two, where people are in alignment. And everybody gets frustrated in business trying to create alignment. I've seen it a million times, because we want the external to be the only part of the limit break. We're like, if we could just create alignment, but what we're missing sometimes is the internal piece. Step one, if the stakeholders that you're working with are not dissatisfied, they are not going to be willing to change, basically. There, there's no motivation. <laughs> Your recipe is missing an important ingredient. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you're trying to make the pizza without the dough. You can make a lot of different types of pizzas without red sauce, and people would argue with you, whatever, but you can't make pizza without any sort of dough. You have to have dissatisfaction and people buying into the mission. You can present them with the mission, that's the external piece, but you cannot create dissatisfaction inside of them. That's something that has to well up internally due to them experiencing pain or seeing others go through suffering like we're seeing here. The realization, just like the alignment, right, we can drive alignment by holding consensus meetings or by doing design thinking sessions or something like that to try to get everybody's thoughts out on paper in an equal way. But we can't force people to have a realization that there's a path forward that we need to take. And that's where going back 20 episodes, right, we had a whole sequence on map making. One of the skill sets is giving different ways of people seeing what the path to success might look like so that they can believe in it and so they can start to take those steps in alignment. All right, so we're two steps through here. I feel like we need to sketch out our presumption of what the final pieces of our recipe are going to be before we wrap this episode, and then we'll spend and or part two talking about how to finish out the recipe and toss it in the oven. Yeah, so let's just wrap the key takeaways here and we'll do it by going through the recipe. So step one, dissatisfaction internal, buy into the mission external. 
Step two, having an internal realization that comes into external alignment. So step three that we're going to kick off at episode two is the internal payment of a cost. And we've been kind of kicking this one around for a while in the last couple series with this idea of sacrifice and is sacrifice required in order to grow and transform. And it's great because it's all coming to a head here where we've come to recognize that in order to complete the circuit, there has to be a cost paid. And you could think about this like filling up the energy bars like we talked about in the Princess Mononoke episode. There's different analogies for paying the cost. There's different types of costs, whether they're physical or emotional, whether they're in terms of time or money. Either way, you have to pay a cost. And then the external piece of that, step three, is the breakthrough. It's when we finally get the limit break. And it happens almost concurrently with the cost being paid, or we'll say maybe the cost being realized here, because the cost could be an incremental cost. And we'll kind of break down that in episode two. And then step four is the flow, because once you have paid the cost and reached the limit break, now things can start to flow. Value can start to flow. Good character can start to flow from one person to another. We can start to see the fruits of our labor and those fruits can start to scale and that limit break can start to flow into other limit breaks. We'll kind of look at how that happens as we go into Andor season one, episode 10, where they're breaking out of the prison. Right. And the great thing about the flow stage is that this is the point at which finally the internal and the external are unified. They're both moving in harmony because we've had alignment, we've paid the cost, we've had the breakthrough. And so now you've got the new thing is emerging in the world as the people are executing it. So we'll talk about those last two steps here. But from our takeaways from this episode, I think we've started to gain some clarity on the necessary ingredients for this recipe. Forming a team, which is a necessary thing to make a change in the world that requires more than one person. And the limit break is the the point we're striving to get to where we have sufficiently marshaled our resources and our skills and aligned our activities so that that change in the world can reflect all of the internal work we've had to do. Awesome. This has been great, Brian. Thanks for wrapping that up, tying the internal and the external together. I can't wait to go deeper into it in episode two. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this ride. We've having a good time with this, and I'm really looking forward to the next conversation. Hope to talk to you next week. And in the meantime, just remember, as always, character is destiny.